I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's printed for you in your bulletins as well. We're going to be looking at the last half of chapter 7 today, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read uh, 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 18, down through verse 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let's pray together. O Lord God, we come before you as your servant David did so long ago, and we would boldly pray that you indeed would accomplish your word. All of the promises that you have given to us as your people, that you would fulfill them in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would bless us as your people, and that you would send us out to be a blessing. Open our eyes that we might see your word and not simply understand it, But give us faith to believe it. And I pray, Father, that as we meditate on what your word says and as you stir our hearts and our minds, that indeed we would be moved. We would be moved to love you in greater ways and to follow you in greater obedience. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think over the course of my life, I've probably gone on 25 or 30 or maybe even 35 uh, short-term mission trips, uh, leaving my home and going somewhere uh, to serve the Lord in uh, various places, uh, both in this country and in other places around the world. 
And uh, perhaps you've been on trips like that before as well, and uh, involving things like doing construction, manual labor, uh, pushing lawnmowers in cemeteries like we do uh, at Crow Creek, uh, helping to lead a vacation Bible school for a neighborhood where a church is located, uh, doing evangelism and outreach and sharing the good news of the gospel to people that we come across, and even just getting to know the people of, uh, of God that are in those different locations. As I was thinking about those trips over this past week, I was realizing that so often on those trips, as we're getting ready to go, there's a common mindset among the team members before they go. There's certainly lots of prayer that is poured into uh, the planning of that trip. There's lots of plans that take place about what's going to happen on the trip. And there's lots of excitement by those who are going to be going. And it's often focused on... What we are going to be able to do, how we're going to be able to bless the the, the missionaries that we're going to be with or the people that we're going to be with, how we're going to do something wonderful and, and something good for the Lord on those trips. It seems like every single time I've gone on one of those trips and had those thoughts, I come back with a very different understanding. I come back realizing that the trip has been much more about what God is doing. The trip has been much more about how God is at work in that place and how God is at work causing His church and His kingdom to grow and expand and to proclaim the gospel. The trip is much more about God Himself teaching us about Himself, teaching us about us, teaching us about His work and His ministry. There's something similar going on here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you were with us last week as we began the chapter, we saw in chapter 7 verses 1 and 2 that the chapter began with David sitting in his royal palace. And he's dreaming up big dreams about what he's going to be able to do for God. How he's going to build a wonderful house for the Ark of the Covenant, for, for the presence of God. He's, he's excited and he's probably already starting about planning about how he's going to do these wonderful things for God. But as we come to the end, the second half and the end of the chapter, we read in chapter, 18, or chapter 7 verse 18 something very different. David is no longer sitting in his palace. Now he's sitting before the Lord and he's listening. He's not planning about what he's going to be doing. He's listening. He's listening to the Lord tell him about what the Lord is going to do. How the Lord is going to be at work. How the Lord is going to fulfill his promises and bless David and his people. As we saw last week, 2 Samuel 7 is considered to be one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament, probably in the entire Bible itself. It is the longest dialogue that God had with his people since giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the things that he says to his people here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 further unveil the fulfillment of the covenant promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden and restated over and over and over again to his people throughout the ages. It is in reality a restatement of God's faithfulness to his promises to provide a Messiah, a Redeemer, to reconcile his people to himself. Last week, we, we, in the first half of the chapter, we looked at what the Lord told David. 
How he told David that God was faithful to his promises and he showed that by always being present with his people and by providing what his people needed, ultimately a redeemer, and that God would fulfill all of his promises faithfully. This, this week, what we're going to see in the second half of the chapter is we're going to see how David responded to what the Lord told him. And what we're going to see is that David shows us that when you hear about God's work, when you hear about God's plan, when you hear about God's grace and mercy, you cannot stay unchanged. It must move you. It must change you. It must cause your love for the Lord to increase and your desire and your strength to follow Him and obey His word to increase. So what I want us to do today is to look at two ways here in the passage that David responded after hearing God's word. He marveled at God's plan and he prayed God's promises. So let's look at those two things. First of all, David responded by marveling at God's plan. You can see that in verses 18 through 24. Now, when we use the word marvel, what does that word mean? Well, it, it means in, in the English language, it means to, to cause to wonder, to, to, to be astonished, to, to, to be, have an intense surprise or interest, to have an amazed curiosity. And when that word marvel shows up in the Bible, in Hebrew in the Old Testament and in Greek in the New Testament, the word means something extraordinary, something that is intensely wonderful, something that is beyond full comprehension. That's a good description of what David experienced after hearing the Lord's plan and his faithful commitment to keep it. Look at what David marveled at. He marveled at God's grace for God's people in the past. Look at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David's remembering God's grace to him in the past. He's, he's probably thinking over the last 10 or 20 years of his life. How far the Lord had brought him from the pasture where the Lord sought him out as he was tending the sheep and made a promise to David that he would eventually put him on the throne over Israel. He's remembering how the Lord not only made that promise, but how the Lord protected David. All the danger that David experienced, his life being threatened. All of the ways that the Lord gave him safe escape and passage. The treachery that David experienced and the slander that was brought against him. Perhaps days of despair and doubt. But David's remembering God's grace in the past to me has been sustaining. It has been faithful. David was remembering that God fulfilled his promise of putting him on the throne. But it's not just David reflecting and remembering how God had, had worked in his life in the past. He's also remembering how David or how God had been at work in the life of Israel in the past. We see that in verses 23 and 24. Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. Making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. 
And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. David is reflecting on the way that God's grace has been at work for his people, Israel, in the past. They are a chosen people. They are a set apart and called out people. A people that have been chosen by God's grace. Not because of anything that is in them, but simply because God set his love upon them. And notice he says in verse 24, he has established them as a people and they are established forever. David's remembering God's promise that God will persevere his people. He will preserve his people because he will sustain them. They know that they will last as God's people because in verse 23 he says that the Lord has redeemed them. He has redeemed them for himself. He has called them out of Egypt and he has called them into his presence forever. And we read at the end of verse 24, he reminds them of how much he loves his people. You should hear the the last words of verse 24. And you, O Lord, became their God. Those words should echo the promise that God had given to his people over and over again in the Old Testament. I will be their God and they will be my people. David's remembering that this promise is that God would be their God and he has become their God and they are a much loved people. He's even given them his special name. You'll notice throughout the passage, Oh Lord God, he prays over and over again. And the word Lord is all in capital letters to, to tell us that that's the special name that God gave to his people, the name Yahweh, that name that is reminding the people of God that God is faithful to his promises. This is what David was marveling at. God's grace for God's people in the past. But notice he's also marveling at God's grace for God's people in the future. Verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. O Lord God, God was promising that he would establish and sustain and bless David and David's house, not just in the past and the present, but into the future forever. We talked last week about how that was partially fulfilled with David's son Solomon and how it is fully and completely fulfilled in the coming of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was from the house and lineage of David and who is the ultimate king of kings and Lord of lords and who at this very moment is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he will for all eternity. All who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are united to Jesus in faith. And so they get all of the promises of God's grace and blessing forever and ever, God says. And notice as God reminds David of God's promise of his grace for his people in the future, he also tells them that they will be the instruction for all mankind. They will be a declaration. They will be a witness of God's grace to the world. Until he returns. David is marveling at God's grace for his people in the past. He is marveling at God's grace for God's people in the future. And as he starts to reflect on that more and more. To see the definiteness of God's grace. And the eternality of God's grace. It is almost as if he is overcome with this grace upon grace that is his. 
It's almost as if he has words. He fails to have words to adequately express it. Look at verse 20. What more can David say to you? What more can I say, God? The words are beyond being able to, to, to adequately discuss this grace upon grace that is mine. And he knows that it's grace upon grace when we get to verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about, brought about all this greatness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if there ever was a passage, a verse to memorize, it is this one. Do you understand the gravity of what we are reading in verse 21? Why do you get God's grace? Why did God shower His grace on you? Because of your faithful obedience to Him. No, that's not what it says. Because of the great family lineage that you've come from. No, that's not what it says. Why do you get God's grace? Verse 21 tells us it is because of His promise. Because, it says, because of His promise and according to your own heart. The reason why we get the grace of God is because God has loved us. He has set His love upon us as His people. That's how we know it's grace upon grace. That's the reason why God made promises to Adam and Eve in the garden. That's the reason why God is faithful to His promises. That's the reason why He would provide His own Son to die on the cross. That's the reason for all this greatness, He says. It is solely and completely because of God's heart. Because of His love for His people. It reminds us of what we what uh, we hear in Deuteronomy chapter seven, as God is speaking to His people. Now, listen, listen to what God says as He's speaking to His people. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. The reason why the Lord loves you, the reason why the Lord is gracious to you, is because He loves you. Paul picked up that same theme as he was writing the letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. That passage that reminds us that our faith is by grace alone in Christ alone. But Paul begins that passage in chapter 2 with these words. Speaking to God's people, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Why is it that God has loved us? Why is it that God has given us His grace? 
It is because he has set his love on us as his people. He has us in his heart as David sees and prays here in 2 Samuel 7. And brothers and sisters in Christ, because our relationship with the Lord, our status as his treasured possession and beloved children, because that is based on his grace and his love, it's 100% secure. God's grace never changes. It never runs out. It never becomes untrue. It is grace upon grace upon grace. That's what David's that's how David's responding as he heard this wonderful message of God's faithfulness to his promises. He marvels at God's plan. So what does that mean for us? Well, it probably means lots of things, but one thing for you to be thinking about today, and that is that your theology, what you believe What you believe about God's grace in particular must move you to respond. It must. If your theology doesn't move you to respond to the Lord God Almighty, it either means that you have a truncated understanding of God's grace or you don't believe it. And notice David gives us some some necessary responses to God's grace. The first is humility. That's what David's expressing in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? Who am I? I don't deserve this. Your people don't deserve this. You know that you're starting to understand God's grace. You're starting to understand God's love when you get humble. If your theology makes you proud and arrogant... If your theology causes you to look down on others and belittle others, your theology is not based on the Scriptures. To understand the Lord God Almighty as He is revealed to us in the Word of God and to see His grace that is based simply on His heart and His love for us as His people, that must melt and soften your heart and cause you to overflow with thanksgiving. You recognize that you are God's treasured possession simply because He set His love on you when you didn't deserve it. That must impact how you treat everyone. And it must impact especially other brothers how you treat other brothers and sisters in Christ that differ with you on some theological convictions. Our theology must drive us to humility. David responded in another way here. His theology also drove him to doxology. Now, the word doxology is just a big word that means worship. His theology drove him to worship. Isn't that what David is doing in verses 20 through 22? What more can David say to you, he says? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Our theology must drive us to worship the Lord God Almighty as David is, is, is showing us here in these verses. And we have some wonderful, wonderful inspired examples of this taking place. If you know 
the book of Romans very well. It's uh, Paul's, and some, some people refer to it as Paul's magnum opus. It, it is a book that is chocked full of wonderful truth and theology. And Paul is building truth upon truth upon truth as he goes through the chapters of Romans. As he's teaching us about God's grace to us, to the Lord Jesus Christ, of our, of our being made just and righteous in God's sight through nothing except for Christ and Him crucified. As he's writing this wonderful theology, he gets to the end of chapter 11 and it's almost as if he steps back from his desk and he breaks out in doxology. This is what he says in chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He breaks out in doxology as he starts to have an apprehension of the fact that he is God's treasured possession Simply because God has set his love, his gracious love on him. Paul actually did it again in Ephesians chapter 3. We already read chapter 2 and chapters 1 and 2 and 3. Paul is again just piling on wonderful theology. Piling on the truth of who God is and God's grace and mercy to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he begins to transition into the last chapters of Ephesians where he will give us wonderful application. He stops at the end of chapter 3 and again breaks out in doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if your theology is simply a hobby for you, if it's just an academic exercise, if, it, if your theology causes you to be arrogant and proud, if your theology is simply a hammer that you use to crush other people who disagree with you, then you need to seriously question your understanding of the Word of God. Seriously question your understanding of His gospel of grace. The theology that comes from the Word of God will and must drive us to worship the Lord with all humility. David shows us his response not just of marveling at God's plan, but he also shows us his response in praying God's promises. That's what we see in verses 25 through 29. Now, in a sense, all of verses 18 through 29 is David's prayer. But we can see here in verses 25 and following that David's prayer is, is changing, it's transitioning. You can see it in the verse in the verse 25 in the words, and now, O Lord God, that's Hebrew syntax for telling us something is something is changing. A change is coming in what Paul is saying. David is moving from uh, it's a change in coming in what David is saying. David is moving from marveling at God's plan to now specifically praying God's promises back to him. Notice how much of David's prayer is focused on the word of God. David is using God's own words to pray them back to him. Even at this stage in redemptive history, David would have had access to portions of the word of God that we have in totality. 
And just look at what he says in verse 20, the beginning of verse 25. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established forever. In verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant. The beginning of verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, in verse 28, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. David was taking the very word of God, the revelation of God, and he was praying it back to God, praying God's promises back to him. The 19th, early 20th century Scottish Baptist pastor, Alexander McLaren, said this, True prayer catches up the promises that have fallen from heaven and sends them back again as feathers to the arrows of its petitions. Now, listen to that again. True prayer catches up the promises that have fallen from heaven and sends them back again as the feathers to the arrows of its petitions. What a wonderful picture. This picture of taking God's word, of taking God's promises that we get from the word of God and using them to, to pray them back to the Lord God Almighty. In, in a sense, that's what Jesus was calling us to do in John chapter 16. As he, as he spoke to his disciples, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name... He will give it to you. Now, that doesn't just mean that we're supposed to tag on in Jesus' name as some kind of magic formula at the end of all of our prayers. Like something magical happens when we say those words. What Jesus is essentially saying is that he, He's telling us to pray according to God's revealed and perfect Word. And as we do that, we are praying in the name of Jesus. Praying God's prayers, promises back to Him. David not only was praying based on God's word, his prayer was also focused on God's glory. We see that in verse 26. He tells God, your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. As David was praying God's word back to him, he was focusing on God's glory. And isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Isn't that how we prayed earlier in our service? Our Father who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Praise be to your name. Glory be to your name. David's prayer is focusing on prayer for God to magnify and to glorify his own name. To highlight his faithfulness to his promises. David was praying God's promises in response to what God had said. He was doing that by using the Word of God. He was, using, he was doing it by focusing on God's glory. And I want you to notice how bold David's prayer is. You can see that in verses 28 and 29. And now, O Lord God, You are God, and Your words are true, and You have promised this good thing to Your servant. Now, therefore, may it please You to bless the house of Your servant, so that it may continue forever before You. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. There is a boldness here in this part of the prayer. He was calling on the Lord God Almighty to do what the Lord God Almighty had promised that he would do. 
And you can start to understand how bold David is being when you understand that David is using imperatives. He, he, he is essentially commanding God to do what God had promised to do. In verse 29, where it says, May it please you to bless. That's an imperative. Make it to be done, he's saying. Make it to be accomplished. And again in verse 25, confirm your word. Do as you have spoken, God. Now he's not putting himself above the Lord, but he's calling on the Lord boldly to do what the Lord had promised to do. And the reason why he can be so bold, as we read at the end of verse 29, is because God had already spoken these things. David was simply saying what God had already said. God's authoritative word said these things. And so David knew it was good to be bold in calling on God to do what he had promised. So what does this mean for us? This portion of how David responded. Again, probably many things, but one thing for us today is as we finish up. We ought not to make prayer harder than it already is. Prayer's difficult. Prayer's hard work. We struggle to know how to pray. We struggle to know what to pray. But one simple, profound, and powerful thing that we can do is to pray God's Word back to Him. To pray the promises of God back to Him. Not our interpretation of it, but the very words of God. And as we do that, it fills us with certainty and confidence and even boldness because we know that our prayers are in, line, are in alignment with God's revealed word and plan. We pray God's prayers, God's promises back to him. And as we do that, it also fills us with a joy. As pastor and Bible commentator Roger Ellsworth has put it, David's prayer here provides not only a description of the happy heart, but also a prescription for it. As we reflect on God's word, as we think about the goodness of God, as we think about the, the thanksgiving of God, as, as we rest on the promises of God, as, as we bask in the promises that we are God's treasured possession because of his grace and love to us in Christ, then God actually uses that as we're praying His, His promises back to Him to, to, to produce true and lasting and satisfying joy in us. Brothers and sisters, we have this complete, rich, deep, theologically sound resource for prayer that's available to us. The Word of God. But to use it as David does necessitates not just that we pray it, but that we know it. Now, certainly one way that we can do what David is doing here is that we can open our Bibles and we can pray as we read the scriptures. It's probably easiest to do that with the Psalms. Open the Psalms and simply pray the Psalms back to God. We could also do that with something like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words to us as his disciples. As we, uh, our, our prayers will be even more enriched and be even more bold. If not only do we read the word of God, but that we know the word of God well enough that it starts to overflow into the words of our prayers. And that necessitates that we know the word of God. And that necessitates having a relationship with the word of God that is more than just on Sundays. We need to be reading it regularly throughout the week, committing it to memory. And God will use that as we are praying to, to have the words of God come 
through our prayers as we pray the, prom- pray the promises of God back to him. So here's what we're seeing in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. God has reminded David of his faithfulness to his covenant promises. He has reminded David of his grace upon grace upon grace. And as a result, as David hears it and is washed over with it, he is moved to respond. He wasn't left unchanged. He was marveling at God's plan, at God's grace, and he prayed God's promises back to him. It's a reminder to us today that our theology and what we believe about God, about his truth and about his grace, it must move us. It can't leave us unchanged. It must move us to humility and to worship and to a bold prayer that is focused on God's word and God's glory. It's a little bit like the last time you went to see a wedding or participated in a wedding. Now, I realize for most of us that's been a while. But if you think about the last time that you went to a wedding, maybe it's even been in this room. Often, as the wedding is beginning, the groom is standing at the front. And the groom is looking to the back. As the doors are closed, he's looking and waiting for the doors to open because he's looking for his bride. He's looking for the bride to appear. And as that moment happens, normally the congregation is turned and focused toward the bride, but... Sometimes it's actually kind of neat to look at the front and look at the groom as he sees his bride. And inevitably what you're going to see, if the groom has any of his wits about him at that moment, is that you're going to see him changing on the spot. You're going to see a response. You're going to see him being moved. He's going to be moved because he's going to see this wonderful person that he is pledging himself to. And all that that means, as he sees his bride begin to walk down the aisle, the groom will be moved As I was thinking about that, I thought, actually, what we're talking about here is the reverse of that. Because the scriptures tell us that we are the bride. That Jesus is our groom. And so as we come into the room and we look and we see our Savior, we know that He has loved us from before the foundation of the world with a love that will never stop. That he loves us so much that he looks at us and he makes us his treasured possession. And we as his bride look forward and we see our Savior. And as we see our Savior, our hearts have, have, must melt. We must be moved. We must be changed. We must be moved to love him and obey him and serve him in greater ways. Let's pray together. Lord God Almighty, we are thankful and astounded as we once again hear about your grace, about your love for your people, that when we could never deserve it, you set your heart upon us, you set your love upon us. You have made us your treasured possession, your beloved children. Father, as we meditate on that, not just today, but every single day of our lives, would you melt and soften our hearts? And we pray, Father, that you would help us to respond faithfully to your grace. Move us to be people of great humility. Move us to be people of great worship. 
And help us, Father, to take your word and to pray your promises back to you with a boldness that comes from the authority of your word. And as you would be at work in us, enabling us to do this, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased and that you would fill us with hope and strength and peace so that as we go into this world, even in this week ahead, we would be equipped to love you with all of who we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to follow you in obedience. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.